Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. So again, tickets are available in the Breezeway. Fantastic. I would encourage ladies to be part of that. Invite some unchurched friends to come with you. Okay, let me pray and we're going to jump right in this morning. Father, we thank you for our time together, for a great time of worship, Lord, just preparing our hearts to trust you more, to hear from you. And and so I pray, Lord, this morning you just speak very clearly through your word. I pray, Lord, that your name would receive honor and glory. I pray through the power of the Spirit we could be transformed more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and open to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61. This is our second week in our sermon series we've entitled Sent. And I'm going to begin every sermon throughout this series with a statement that I hope resonates in your heart and you begin to be challenged by more and more and more. Here's the statement. It's kind of foundational for this series. We serve a sending God. Let me say that again as you let that sink in just for a moment. We serve a sending God. We don't serve a God that kind of stands back and watches from a distance. We don't serve a God that set the world in motion and just kind of lets it go. We don't serve uh, an unconcerned God. We, cons- we, we, we serve a very personal Savior, Jesus Christ, that from the beginning has sent people to accomplish his will. We serve a sending God. And so we spent a lot of time last week kind of making this case. We kind of took a, a big picture approach and we read some scriptures and I'll encourage you, if you didn't hear the sermon last week, it's available on podcast. But I want to just review very quickly because I want to make this point again to remind you if you were here last week or to maybe for the first time display to you that Jesus Christ did not just randomly enter the world. Jesus didn't just wake up one day and decide, why not? Instead, what we see from the beginning is that God had a plan, and Galatians tells us when the time had fully come, come, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And so we made this comment yesterday that Jesus was sent. It wasn't some random act. And then we showed all these scriptures. All these scriptures through the book of John that use this word sin. Now, I'm going to give you three of them again today. I just picked three random scriptures out of John. There's so many we could choose from. I want to show them to you again today just to again make the point to remind you if you were here last week or to encourage you if you are not. But there are three verses I want to read this morning that point to this truth that Jesus Christ was sent. The first one is John 3.17. I think we have these on the screen. John 3.17, for God did not send, there's that word, his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, right? There's this picture very clearly in John 3.17 that God sent his son. John chapter 8, verse 18, Jesus speaking says, I am the one who testifies for myself, my other witnesses, the father who sent me, right? God the father sent Christ to this earth. John chapter 13, verse 20. The Bible says in John 13, 20, 
She doesn't have it. That's my fault. I didn't give it to her. Let me read it to you. It's in the Bible, I promise. We just don't have it on the screen. John 13, 20 says, Verily, verily, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Right Now, just to be clear, I just pulled a few verses. There are over 40, 40 in the Gospel of John alone that specifically say that Jesus was sent. So, so there's this compelling scriptural argument throughout the Gospel of John and the other Gospels that Jesus didn't randomly come to this earth. He was sent with a purpose and with a plan. He was sent to accomplish very specific things. Now last week we kind of broadened the picture a little bit. We said it wasn't just Jesus that God sent. In fact, we said from the beginning of time, God has been sending people to accomplish his purposes. And so we looked at a few Old Testament scriptures. We looked at people like Isaiah and Moses and Samuel and this long list of people throughout the Old Testament that God sent. And we're going to see one of those examples today in Isaiah as well. And then we made the connection, right? We always want to make this connection between what the Lord says in his word and me. You should never leave without some sort of connection to his word and some sort of application for your life. And so we made the connection in John 17 last week that Jesus, just before he ascends into heaven, he's surrounded by his followers. He makes this incredible statement, praying to God the Father, Jesus says in John 17, 18, as you sent me, Jesus says to God the Father, I have also sent them into the world, speaking of his followers. So Jesus says, listen, just like I was sent to this earth, there's John 13. John, do we have John 17, 18? We don't have that one. That's okay. Jesus says in John 17, just as you sent me, I have sent them into the world. So let's just, again, let's make this clear comparison and understanding here. Jesus was sent into the world, and just before he ascended into heaven, he sent you into the world. If you want to read one of these kind of amazing passages of Scripture when Jesus is actually praying for you, John 17, the high priestly prayer, is that prayer. Because he says, I'm not just praying for these here, I'm praying for those that will believe in my name. That's you. And so we can, we can make this very clear case, biblically, really beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's really no dispute or disagreement here. As Jesus was sent, we are also sent into the world. So here's the question I asked last week. I'm going to continue to ask it over the course of this series. It's the question you need to be able to answer. Here's the simple question. What has God sent me to do? If God sent Christ, if God sent Isaiah, if God sent Moses, if he sent Elijah, if he sent Paul, if he sent Peter, on and on and on the list goes in the New Testament. And Jesus then sent us The question becomes, very simply, God, what have you sent me to do? And so over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to answer that question. Now, I want to give you something that I hope we can build upon and you can understand a little bit better. I'm going to give you an acronym for the word sent, right? We're going to be talking about sent. We're going to be talking about how the Lord has sent people throughout history, how the Lord is sending you and figuring out exactly what that means. And so I'm going to give you just the first one today. We're going to build this as we go. 
But to help us kind of understand what ought to happen when we're sent, the first thing we're going to say, to be sent means to be spirit-empowered or spirit-led. If you're going to be sent into the world and accomplish the will of the Father, you've got to be led by the Spirit. Now, this idea of being spirit-empowered is something we're going to take a look at today and really over the next couple of weeks because there are lots of examples in Scripture where the Spirit empowered and then sent individuals in the world to accomplish very specific things. And so I want you to make this connection again this morning. We've already turned to Luke, excuse me, to Isaiah chapter 61. I want to read a passage for you in Luke chapter 4. I don't know if we have this one up or not. I'm not sure if I gave this to the team in the back or not. But Luke chapter 4 is an interesting passage of Scripture. Because what's going to happen here is Jesus has just begun his ministry, he's been baptized, he's been tempted in the wilderness, he literally kind of walks out of the wilderness, and this is what happens in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. This is fascinating, right? We're going to make the connection now between being sent, spirit-empowered, and then our text in Isaiah 61. Jesus returned to Galilee in the what? Power of the Spirit. He's empowered by the Spirit. You understand what's happening here? He was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. We saw that several weeks ago. He comes out of the wilderness now being led in the power of the Spirit, right? So S, he's sent, Spirit-empowered, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. Now, Jesus hadn't really done anything at this point. No miracles, not thousands of people following me and fed all those people yet. He's not walking on the water. None of that's happened yet. Verse 15, look what happens. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him, right? So he begins to teach. People are listening to him. Verse 16. So he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was the custom. Now, this is just fascinating. So he stood up to read, verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Now, just pause for a second. You understand, I hope, if you don't, I want to explain it to you, that the idea of holding the entire canon of Scripture in one book is unprecedented in the history of the world, right? People just haven't been able to do this. What you have before you represents kind of a modern marvel. It seems silly to us because a book seems so old school. But for centuries, people didn't have this. So when Jesus was alive, there was no bound Bible, there was no New Testament, there were scrolls, and there weren't very many of them. If you wanted to read it, oftentimes you had to go into the synagogue. So he goes into the synagogue, he wants to read, they hand him Isaiah, he unrolls the scroll, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Now he's in Isaiah, he found this place where it's written. Now I'm not going to read the next several verses, because he's going to quote now from Isaiah 61. Are you with me? I don't want to lose you here, right? We're in in Luke 4. He's reading from Isaiah, but he's going to quote from Isaiah 61, which is where we're going to be this morning in our study. And then skip on down to verse 20. He rolls it back up, right? He finishes reading, rolls the scroll up, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And then verse 20 is just kind of breathtaking. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, hey guys, this text in Isaiah 61 that I just read on this scroll, it's fulfilled in me. This guy that Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 61, it's fulfilled in me. Right, Jesus is basically saying, look, the, the, the Messiah that you've been looking for for centuries is fulfilled in me. 
Now, I'm not going to go into the, the rest of the account, but they try to stone him and he walks away. It's kind of interesting what happens there. But Jesus is basically now making this connection to Isaiah 61, saying that what was written in Isaiah 61 was actually about Christ. So let's go ahead and delve in now. This is important. Isaiah chapter 61. Let's figure out what we can learn about Christ being sent, how that applies to our lives. And through this process, as we kind of understand more and more about what the Spirit does and the power in being sent, the hope is we begin to recognize more clearly what the Lord has sent us to do and accomplish. So Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. So the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. There's the idea of the Spirit again. Spirit-led, Spirit-empowered. In Luke 4, Christ was led by the Spirit. He came in the power of the Spirit. In Isaiah 61, it's looking ahead to Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has, and here's the word, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, And release from darkness the prisoners, verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, verse 3, and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Remember, Jesus Christ was sent. He was sent in the power of the Spirit, and he sends us into the world with the same Spirit and the same power to accomplish his mission. So here's truth number one. We are empowered by the Spirit and sent to proclaim good news and give freedom to those in bondage. And that's a long one. Let me read it again. We are empowered by the Spirit and sent to proclaim good news and give freedom to those in bondage. Look again with me, if you would, please, in Isaiah 61, verse 1. There's two things I want you to notice about this first verse. Two very interesting things that will help kind of build our case here. The first one is that it's the Spirit of the Lord that gives power, right? The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. So let's just make sure we understand. Everything that's going to happen from this point on is because the Spirit is upon Isaiah and eventually upon Christ. Now just a a, a little bit of of kind of biblical theology here. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was given sparingly to individuals to do certain things. So the Spirit of the Lord upon Isaiah would have been kind of a special anointing. In the New Testament, after Acts 2 and Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls upon all believers. So it's not just this selective couple. It's not just Isaiah and Moses and Elijah and a couple of these people we know very well. In Acts chapter 2, the Bible tells us that the Spirit has fallen upon all believers. And so just kind of make the connection. The same Spirit that was upon Isaiah that led him and empowered him, the same Spirit that was upon Christ and led him and empowered him is the same Spirit that is upon you that should lead you and empower you to be sent into the world to accomplish his purposes. So we see very clearly the Spirit and the power of the Spirit and the leadership of the Spirit is is involved in Isaiah 61. The second thing we see is there's an imagery, there's imagery here on several different levels of sending 
and purpose and planning and proclamation, right? It wasn't as if the Lord said to Isaiah, look, just kind of get out there, do whatever you want to do, figure it out as you go. I don't really care what you do, just kind of be a good Christian. The Lord instead says, listen, I've got a very specific plan for you to accomplish. Look at verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, right? There's that sense of calling to proclaim the good news. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and then proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness, the prisoners. See, see Christianity, and, and many of you probably know this, but, but I'm not sure everybody's living this, is not really a spectator sport. See, God has called us to accomplish a purpose. And one of the things he's called us to do is to proclaim the good news and bring his salvation to the world. Right, bring verse 1 up again for me. Let's just look at it. Let's just make sure it's actually there. I don't want to make things up. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to what? Proclaim good news to the poor. And he goes on, he sent me, and he kind of fills in the gaps, right, right? God has sent me to proclaim the good news. Now, here's what some people are thinking. You're, you're trying to justify your lack of action by saying something like this. Well, I thought it was the pastor's job or the job of my Sunday school teacher or the job of the deacons of the church to actually proclaim the good news. I thought that was their job. Well, I would agree with you 100%. It is the job of the pastor or the pastors of this church, the deacons of this church, the Sunday school leaders. It is the job of the leaders of this church to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is true. But it's also the job of everybody else. You understand that? The Lord doesn't say, listen, pastors and pastors alone and everybody else, you kind of take a pass. Christ says, I'm praying for everybody that will believe in me. John chapter 17. I'm praying to everybody that will believe in me. And just as you've sent me, I'm sending them, what? To proclaim the good news of Christ. It's our job to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Here's what one scholar says. God will transform his people, their situation, his city, and the nations who observe God's blessings on his people. This transformation will bring good news, freedom, God's favor, comfort, gladness, and splendor of the Lord, rebuilding wealth, a double portion of blessing, and an everlasting covenant. Then people who acknowledge God will rejoice, be saved, and praise God. What has the Lord sent you to accomplish? Is, is he calling you or sending you to accomplish something in your home? More than likely, there's a yes answer to that somewhere. He probably wants you to accomplish something in your home. Has he sent you to accomplish something at your job? Probably. Has he sent you students to accomplish something at school? Teachers, has he sent you to accomplish something in the break room? As he sent you to accomplish something at the ball field, right? We should, we should kind of begin to examine our lives through this lens of being sent. If God has sent me, and, and we have to say with, with absolute biblical authority that he has sent us, and he wants us to accomplish certain things, then the lens through which we view the world should be this idea of being sent. Everything about my life should be understanding what Christ has sent me to do. 
We've been sent to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Now here's truth number two, and I'm going to do it a little bit different. Usually I read the text and then give you the point, but I want to give you the second truth because I want you to notice as I read the scripture how this plays itself out. So here's truth number two. We are empowered by the Spirit and sent to help rebuild the lives of those that have been devastated with sin. So not only are we sent and empowered to proclaim the good news and set people free from their sins, but the second thing, we're empowered by the Spirit and sent to help rebuild the lives of those that have been devastated by sin. Now I want to read for you as we continue this study in Isaiah 61, now verses 4 through 9. And as I read it, I want you to listen for words of hope, for words of renewal, for this idea of rebirth. Because, we're kind of building this case, we've been sent because of the good news of Jesus Christ. When we answer the call, go into the world, share the gospel of Christ, when we are sent and we share the good news, lives can be restored and hope can be rebuilt. Isaiah 61 verse 4. They will, hear these words, rebuild the ancient ruins. Restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. You will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, this is verse 8, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations, their offspring among the people. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people that the Lord has blessed. By the way, verse 9 there is a direct tie into Abraham. Did you see the comparison there in Genesis? Their descendants will be known among the nations offspring among the people all who see will acknowledge that they are a people and the lord has blessed them these verses verse four through nine are all about hope they're all about renewal they're all about rebuilding and restoring places that have long since been devastated we had the opportunity several years ago to go to gulfport mississippi and i was just reminded of our mission trip down there we went in after katrina I was reminded of our mission trip just over the last couple of weeks because of all the flooding in Louisiana. I was just reminded of what happened in Gulfport. And then the hurricane that just came through Florida and kind of up the East Coast, I was reminded of what happened in Gulfport. And I'll never forget, some of you that, that I think some of you in here even went to Louisiana a couple of weeks ago and helped down there kind of rebuilding. But I'll never forget going down to Gulfport, Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina came through and driving kind of on that front beach road there where all those beautiful houses that stood for so many decades and looking at lot upon lot upon lot with not a lot of debris and not a lot of things kind of strewn around the yard. But instead, here's what you saw. This was fascinating. You would see just a clean concrete slab. He's like, what, what happened to all this stuff? Well, when that, stir, that sor- storm surge came in, which is 25 to 30 feet high, it literally just destroyed everything in its path, wiped everything off, and then when the storm surge went back into sea, it kind of sucked all the debris with it. So somewhere in the Gulf of Mexico, probably at the bottom, is all this debris left over from Hurricane Katrina sucked back in. 
And so you didn't see houses that were destroyed and pieces of lumber laying around oftentimes. You saw just clean concrete slabs. And I'll never forget working in the church. It was several miles off the coast. But because there were some waterways near it, they'd received a lot of flooding. And you walk through that church, and at about five or six feet all through the building, from that point down was just rotten. Why? Because the floodwaters had come in. The floodwaters are devastated and destroyed. And our job while we were there was to rebuild. That's what we did. One of the greatest experiences I had down there, and some of you that went with us will remember, we got to walk around to the FEMA trailers and the people that were living in these these small little white trailers that they kind of lost everything or couldn't live in their house. And we wanted to go help them rebuild and we wanted to think about what we could do for them physically. The thing that I probably didn't think enough about until I got down there was the spiritual component. Because you go into somebody's kind of FEMA trailer and talk about their house and there's a lot they want to talk about physically that they've lost. But there's kind of an emotional and oftentimes a spiritual toll this has taken on them as well. And when you ask a person like that, hey, is there anything I can help you with spiritually or anything I can pray with you about? Just the, the floodwaters of tears. We, we can't fix everything, but when we introduce Christ into devastating situations, we can begin to rebuild lives. You understand that? Hope comes through Christ. So as we have been sent, as we recognize our calling, as we go into the world and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ... We bring hope and salvation and now renewal. Bring point point two back up. There it is. We are empowered by the Spirit and sent to help rebuild the lives of those that have been devastated with sin. Part of the calling, part of the sentness of Christ and the Christians in the world are to help people that have been destroyed by sin to rebuild their lives. Now, I don't have to spend any time telling You guys, because you know stories well enough, and some of you may have even experienced this yourself. I don't have to waste the time telling you that sin absolutely destroys lives. Not only does it destroy lives, but it leaves wreckage in the past, and oftentimes it destroys lives of other people associated with us. And so the person living without Christ, they may not even necessarily understand what's happened to them spiritually, but they've got a life oftentimes that is left in destruction, in ruins, and they need somebody to come along and help them rebuild. Now, just a clue, you can't do it yourself. And that's the first mistake we make because we think we can fix all this. And so we start putting band-aids on the things that they've done. We start putting band-aids and we start trying to fix and we try to start repairing. All the time missing the cause of the disease. Jesus says, when I'm entered into a situation, when, when someone that is sent brings the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope of Jesus Christ to a lost person and the destruction they've left, in that process, through Christ, hope is renewed and we begin now to rebuild the lives that have been destroyed through the sin of the world. I read a fascinating study a couple of weeks ago from Pew Research. You've heard of Pew Research. They do a lot of different studies and a lot of different surveys nationwide. And they did a study about our country falling farther and farther away from the Lord. I want to read a quote from that article. Half of Americans who have left their church, and by the way, that number is increasingly getting larger. People that are leaving the church, leaving their faith. 
Half of Americans who have left their church no longer believe in God. Leading a, listen to the word, a surge of nearly one quarter of the nation who have no affiliation with any religion according to this new study. In other words, more and more people, it's a growing segment of people that have no affiliation with any sort of religion. Pew Research Center said Wednesday that 49% of what they term nuns, these are people that have no affiliation with religion, left their church and religion because they don't believe. Another 20% said they don't like organized religion. The latest survey from the Pew Survey Center Research Center demonstrates a growing trend in America that more and more people are junking religion and many are giving up on God. Now this is happening more and more. More and more around our country, people are giving up on God, they're giving up on religion. And here's kind of maybe, this is where my mind goes, at least when I see these numbers, I think, well, that's probably not the case for here because we're in the deep south, we're in the Bible Belt, and there's a lot of Christians, and, and that's not necessarily happening here. Well, let me give you some numbers. Let me give you some actual fact. According to the U.S. Census Department numbers, and you look all these numbers up, they've been a lot of research, and they, they, they can answer some of these questions for us. According to their research, a 20-mile drive from this church in any direction. So you drive 20 miles in any direction. There are 30,000 people that don't know Jesus Christ. 30,000 people. 20-mile radius from this church. I see, we, we live, even though we're in the quote-unquote Bible belt, we still live among people that don't know Christ. We still live among people that make mistakes because they don't understand how Christ calls them to live. We still live among people that have wrecked and destroyed their lives and are in desperate need of actual hope and actual peace and someone to come in through the power of the Spirit and help them begin to rebuild their lives. Now here's the, maybe the saddest part of what, I'm about to, of what I've just said to you. I didn't just surprise anybody, did I? Did anybody just go, I thought everybody in America were Christians. See, we know that there are unbelievers. We know that there are people that live very near to us, way less than 20 miles, that don't know Christ. We know people that have kind of wrecked their lives because they don't understand the clear teachings of the Bible. But here's the problem. I'm going to sum it up for you by reading Luke 10, 1 and 2. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and here's the word again, sent them two by two ahead of him in every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, and here's what you need to hear. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now listen to the phrase that Christ uses here. I think it's fascinating. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to, you want to guess the word? Send out workers into his harvest field. See, the problem isn't the harvest field. It exists, becomes larger and larger every day. The problem isn't the calling because the Lord has sent us. The problem is we've refused to go. I'm not sure I could say it any clearer. We have been sent, we've been given a very clear mandate, we are well aware of the fact that thousands among us are lost and dying without Savior that will send them to an eternal hell separated from the Lord. We understand all that. 
problem is, for whatever reason, we've just decided not to go. We've decided that maybe somebody else is better suited than we are. We've decided maybe God sent somebody instead of sending me. See, I believe Christ sent every one of us, gave us a very clear calling. When we answer that calling, hope is renewed, lives are rebuilt, salvation enters, and people change. Now let's finish up in verse 10. I want you to notice the result of all this. Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. Why? Here's why. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, for as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Here's truth number three. We are empowered by the Spirit and sent to bring joy through salvation. We are empowered by the Spirit and sent to bring joy through salvation. Now look again with me, if you would, please, at verse 10. Bring verse 10 back up, if you would. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. Why? Pause for a second. Because I've made a lot of money, or I've got a great job, or I'm really athletic, or people like me, or I've kind of gotten everything out of this world that I want. Is that why I receive joy? Is that why my soul delights? Nope. My soul delights because he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. Far too many of us have forgotten the joy of salvation, haven't we? Far too many of us have forgotten the great experience of accepting and loving and living for Christ. Far too many of us have forgotten what it's like to be unsaved and what that world looks like. And yet we're reminded here in Isaiah 61, if we'll trust the Lord, if we'll allow him to send us, if we'll proclaim his truth, we can bring joy and hope and rebuild lives. And through the Spirit, people will rejoice and find delight. Here's what one writer says. If one looks at the New Testament evidence, one gets another impression. Mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told who could be silent about such a fact. See, see here's the kind of the, almost the unexplainable mystery for us. Not only are we sent... Not only are we called to go and to share the good news, but we have to tell the greatest story ever told. We have a story full of hope and joy and delight, and yet we're silent about it. We have to ask ourselves this question. Lord, if you were sent, if you sent Christ, and you sent me, 
and you've now empowered me by the Spirit, what are you calling me to do? C.T. Studd, a famous missionary, said this about joy. I cannot tell you what joy it gave me to bring the first soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have tasted, now listen to what he says. I have tasted almost all the pleasures that this world can give. I do not suppose there's one that I have not experienced. But I can tell you that those pleasures were as nothing compared to the joy that the saving of the one soul gave me. See, Christ has given us this ability as believers to share the gospel, to share the good news, to repair broken lives, to renew people's spirits and renew their hopes and bring them joy and bring them delight. But, but this is important. It's only going to happen as believers hear the call of the Lord upon their lives to be sent and are willing to go. What has God sent you to do? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clear picture again in your word of a mandate to go. Lord, we just continue to pile up evidence that we've been sent. Lord, we learned this morning that we're sent through the power of the Spirit, that we're Spirit-led. So, Father, I pray that we would just trust you more, that the Holy Spirit would guide us and direct us. Father, we'd be willing to understand that the power that you've given us through the Spirit to accomplish what you've sent us to do. But Father, for so many of us, I pray that this becomes more than just an academic or thought exercise. And this idea of being sent becomes actually who we are. It becomes the lens through which we view our lives. Father, help that simple truth and that simple calling to radically change the way we view the world and to radically change the way we live for you. Give us the strength and the courage to be obedient in all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can stand. We're going to give you the opportunities we always do. The altar is open. You can come pray about what the Lord sent you to do. You can stand in the gap for somebody else. You can talk to me about salvation. But this is your opportunity to respond as we sing together. You come. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.